dinner. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> All right. Ephesians 4 is where we're at today. We are studying the book of Ephesians. And today is all about chapter 4. Have you ever been to the store and saw in the shampoo or body bath area the whole like four-in-one thing? I don't even know what to call it. They're like shampoo, conditioner, body wash, and face wash somehow. I don't know how that quite works, but that's what today's sermon is. It's a four-in-one. There are four sections in chapter four uh, that I really want to zone in. I want you to leave today really being able to, next time you read chapter four, go, hey, I see it. I see the adventure that Paul was going through. I see the sections. And so let's do it. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in chapter four. And my goal, like I said, is to help you understand it. So before we jump in, uh, here's a breakdown of chapter 4. You could break it, like I said, into four different sections. So verses 1 through 6 is Paul exhorting the Ephesian church towards unity. Chapters one, or verses 1 through 6 are more of him kind of closing what he's been saying in chapter 3 and the end of chapter 2. It's kind of like the landing of the plane. But he's exhorting the Ephesian church and the churches surrounding that area to unity. Verses 7 through 16, he dives into spiritual gifts and the church, God's heart for the church, the universal church. And then verses 17 through 24, Paul calls the believers to countercultural living. And then in verses 25 through 32, he gets practical on what countercultural living looks like. And he lays out what they should do away with and how they should put on the new things available to them by the Spirit of God. So that's kind of where we're going to go today. So let's read verses 1 through 6. And it starts with Paul saying, I therefore. So therefore is kind of like a, a transitional word. So I therefore, in light of everything I've said, remember the previous three chapters were all on the Apostle Paul, really putting on full display what the gospel of Jesus really is, really just putting it front and center. This is the gospel. And then he then within that really encourages the Jews and the Gentiles to become one. If you are not Jewish by, you know, physically Jewish, you are a Gentile. I am a Gentile. Most of us in the room are Gentiles, and praise the Lord that the gospel is for the Jew and the Gentile alike. And that's what the Apostle Paul is really trying to drill, that they would come together and view themselves as one bride of Christ and not two separate brides of Christ. No, that's not two separate covenants, it's one covenant. And so that leads us to I therefore, in verse 1, Paul says, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
So this is verses one through six. <clears throat> so very quickly, line by line, Paul starts off by saying, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Of all the things he could have called himself, he would choose to identify with Jesus as a prisoner for the Lord, which right here just shows you Paul's heart posture towards Jesus. Paul was indebted to the Lord. His life motto was that if Christ died to save me for eternity, then I will live for him no matter the cost. Even if it costs me my own life, to live as Christ, to die as gain, I'm a prisoner for Jesus. My life is indebted to him. Like the song we just sang, let my life be a, a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. That was the Apostle Paul's mentality. And just here right off the bat, this should be our mentality. My life motto should be, I land in a prisoner, a willing prisoner for the Lord, a servant of the Lord. And then Paul goes on to say something that now going forward, when you read a lot of his other letters, you're going to see this. It's kind of like the blue car thing. When you get a blue car, you see blue cars everywhere. This is that. Paul says this in all, almost all of his New Testament letters where he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Another way to say that is because you have been called into salvation in Jesus by grace, a free gift, because you've been called into that, now as a result of the free gift of being saved by Jesus, walk worthy of it and live like the people Jesus intends you to be. Walk worthy of the calling. And, he, and, he, and you might ask, well, what does that look like? Great question. We keep reading. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So simply put, to live worthy of salvation is to live in humility, gentleness, patience, willingness to love, even when it's really hard to love. Um, even the people in this room, this isn't like the non-believers that get on your nerves at the store. Yes, you're to love those people, but he's also with, keeping in mind it's the people within the church. Love these people. And he says, and live in unity. And so really quickly, can I just pause here and say, you cannot live a life worthy you cannot be the person Jesus wants you to be without remaining close to Jesus. It's impossible. Through reading the scriptures and engaging with the Lord in the word, through times of worship, individually just singing alone with nobody around. Of course, yes, corporately singing and worshiping. Through times of prayer, Alone, again, the word, worship, and prayer, these are ways you engage in a relationship with Jesus. And as a result of engaging with Jesus, the Holy Spirit then does a work in your heart inwardly. Therefore, the ripple effect of that is you grow in humility, patience, love. Your heart is bent more towards unity. It was a heavy burden on my heart. I, I fall into this category a lot. Sometimes what I see is people tend to forget that God just wants to be with us. He just wants to be with you. 
And it's very easy to fall into this deception that God is, he wants what I bring to the table, meaning he, he delights in me by how effective I am for him. If I'm a servant, if I work hard, if I advance the kingdom, if I do all these things, that's what pleases him. And, and yes, that's true. But even more than that, what God really wants is you just to be at his feet. Again, the whole Mary Martha thing. Martha was too busy and that was fine. It's great to have details. And, but Mary chose the right thing just to sit at his feet. Now, we don't just sit there and stay there. We sit there and from that place we go work. Anyways, the only way we can truly live a life worthy of the calling of Jesus is to stay close to Jesus, to sit at his feet, to devote time with the Lord. So, so stop falling into this deception that, well, I serve, well, I give, I do all these things. Yes, keep doing all those things, but don't forget to stop and spend time with the Lord. He's actually pleased more by your willingness just to be still and to sit at his feet and to know him in his word and worship and pray. That's how you live a life worthy of the calling. And so Paul closes out this section by what's known as a series of ones. Paul's throwing out all of the major theological foundations of what unifies us in the Lord. Remember, Paul was exhorting these believers to unity. In verses 4 and 5, he says, there is, again, he's speaking to a church full of Jews and Gentiles. And for some reason, they were just convinced that Jesus was one thing to the Jews and one thing to the Gentiles. And Paul's like, stop. There is one body, one church, not two. There is one spirit, not two Holy Spirits, one just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one Jesus that saves, not two. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father. We have one Father. We have one hope. We have one faith. We have one Lord, not two. One. And underneath those ones is where we all find our identity in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. Paul's saying, unite under these things. Focus on these things. Unite and get to work in advancing this kingdom. Paul is in essence saying, drop all of your worship preferences. Jews, you want it one way. Gentiles, you want it one way. These Gentiles want it one way. These guys want the fast songs. These guys want the slow songs. These guys want an hour. These guys want 15 minutes. These guys just want to worship the whole time. Drop all your preferences. Unite under these things. And those were actual things that they were wrestling with. I mean, it's funny. We still wrestle with the same things. But Paul was saying, stop. Just drop it. All of your clothing preferences. And you think we should wear this. And you think we should just unite under the ones. Lay all your preferences down. And the heart of God, based on this, these scriptures, the heart of God for every local church is unity. Not superficial unity, true, genuine unity. And now to be clear, I have to say what unity doesn't mean is everybody agrees on everything. We all agree. Unity doesn't mean that it's a unanimous agreement 
If everybody loves every aspect of every decision made at every local church, that's most likely a small church of like one person. But the unity Paul is speaking on is remembering, even in your disagreement, we're family. We belong to one Lord, one faith. There's one baptism, one Father. And even in our disagreement, we should talk it out like family. We should lay it all out there, but all the while operating in humility. The moment you step out of humility, the moment you need to go sit down. And pray and let the Lord work on your heart. But even in your disagreement, you talk it out all the while remembering we're on the same team. That's unity and serving one another. In fact, I think what pleases the Lord a lot is when I lay my preferences down for the sake of allowing your preferences to be the decision we make. And that's what the heart of the Apostle Paul was. So unity. And I have to say, the moment someone disagrees on the major ones, then you have a stance to disagree. If we were to get up here and start saying, there's actually two Jesuses, you can walk out and disagree and say, we're no longer on the same page. But as long as a church unites under the one majors, the major theological pillars of the faith, as long as a local church is in that, all the secondary and the third and the fourth tier issues, you can talk about it. But as long as we engage and unify under those things, we're on the same team and we're in covenant relationship together. So my encouragement based on these verses is that all of us would commit to walking close to Jesus, allowing him to instill his nature into us. And as we do that, we're all operating in Christ-like conduct, which then leads to unity within the church. And if you're a visual person, what really these verses are saying is we must reject self-centeredness in order to walk in humility. We must reject harshness in order to walk in gentleness. We must reject committing to our own agendas in order to walk in patience. We must reject unrealistic expectations on people in order to walk in love. And we must reject being passive or indifferent in order to maintain the unity of Christ. That is sermon number one. <laughs> May we all operate this way. But we continue. So that's kind of the end of chapter two, all of chapter three, and the very beginning of chapter four are all one collective thought to the Jews and the Gentiles to unify and walk and live like Christ. Now the Apostle Paul begins to kind of shift into some practical things. Verses seven through 16 are all about spiritual gifts and the church. So let's start with verses 7 through 10, where Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. You might read that and go, okay, not sure what that just said. Let me explain. These verses really highlight the reality we see in a lot of Paul's writings that God has given his people spiritual gifts. Verses 8 through 10 are Paul using an Old Testament picture 
to symbolize what Christ has done. Maybe some of you saw it. Most of you probably didn't. But Paul here is quoting Psalm 68, where Moses went up to the mountain. He ascended to the mountain and, and there met with God. And then he descended from the mountain and bring a gift to the people called the law, the Ten Commandments. He brought, he, as he descended, he gave gifts to the people and Paul here is just using a symbolic way of saying in a sim similar way, Christ descended, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the grave, spent time with people, and then he ascended back to heaven at the right hand of the Father, and then he has given gifts to men. He's symbolically saying, just like Moses, so Jesus has brought gifts to his people. What are those gifts? So many things, but one specific thing is spiritual gifts. Now, I tried really hard not to make this a whole entire message on spiritual gifts, but I do have five thoughts that I just have to share on spiritual gifts. If you ask right now, what is Jesus doing? I don't know if you've ever thought that before, but right now, what Jesus is doing is he is seated on the throne, King of Kings, the risen Lord, seated on the throne of heaven. But not just sitting there waiting. What he's doing right now is he is serving and, and commissioning and, and be, he's with his people. He is serving his church to advance his kingdom. And a way that he does that is through spiritual gifts. So five thoughts on spiritual gifts. Number one. We have to be able to discern what is a natural talent and what is a supernatural gift. Just to clarify, a supernatural talent is something you just innately have from birth. A supernatural gift is something you receive after your new birth in Christ. A natural talent is something you can do before you're a Christian. A supernatural talent or gift is something that accompanies the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit when you become a Christian. A lot of times, now just to clarify, because it's really easy to get fuzzy. A lot of times, your actual primary gifting to the local church is your physical gift that you've had since birth. But you do it. You use it for the glory of God. Singing, as an example. Singing is not a spiritual gift. Anybody can sing. You can be a, a non-believer and sing. But once you become a Christian... You can actually use this gift that you've been given since birth to bless the congregation and worship the Lord. It's a way you use your natural gift to serve the body. You could be a graphic designer or an accountant or a creative person or an intellectual person. Whatever your specific case may be, maybe God gave you those gifts at your physical birth so that you would use those gifts for his glory and to serve the body of Christ and the world. That's perhaps might, might be why he gave you that. So discern the difference between physical, natural gift, and spiritual gift. Now, zoning in on spiritual gift, number two, the way you find your spiritual gift is through trial and error. Again, this is a gifting that maybe you did not have prior to your knowing Christ. It's a supernatural gift, but a lot of you may sit in the seats and go, I don't know. Well, you probably haven't, through trial and error, discovered it. 
But Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 are, are two chapters that include lists of the spiritual gifts. But to discover what your gift is means you have to step in somewhere and just give it a shot. And after you give it a shot and you realize this is just not working or people are constantly frustrated with me or people keep telling me to stop, that's probably an indication that's not your spiritual gift. <laughs> but the opposite is true. If you jump in and you start to see, man, the Lord's really blessing this or man, people are really encouraged by this. That might be it. You might not, again, you might have multiple spiritual gifts. But however, these gifts need to be cultivated. You have to fan the flame. Again, the gift of teaching as an example. It's not like if you have the gift of teaching, you can just walk on the stage and preach an hour-long sound message and you didn't think about it prior to getting on the stage. You just shoot from the hip. I have the gift of teaching. No, the gift of teaching is, is accompanied with a desire to study and to grow and to learn and to dig in and to pre prepare. That all is part of the gift of teaching. Again, it's not you just come up here and I haven't thought about this. I'm just going to shoot from the hip. Somebody probably can do that, but that's not normal. You got to cultivate your spiritual gifts. So fan the flame. If you don't know what to do, we want to help you. Okay, number three, another thought on spiritual gifts. Hear this one, please, is that we need to learn to serve outside of our area of gifting sometimes. Sometimes the church body has a specific need and you are actually the answer to that need for a season, even if it's not your primary gifting. Now, there are some scenarios where this statement does not apply. If we need more worship leaders and your voice requires auto-tune to the max, I'm sorry to say, but you might not be the answer to that need. I know it's not your gifting. This statement does not apply to you. I'm sorry. I know you've been waiting for your chance. But however, sometimes you are the answer to a need. Again, this is a family. I. It's my mission to change this weird perception that has crept into the local church and thinking this is an organization or a business. This is not. This is a family. And when you're a part of a family, if dishes need to be done, even though you don't like it, you do it. If vacuuming or dusting or cleaning, even though that might not be something you love to do, if there's a need, you jump in because that's what families do. Yep. So sometimes in this family called Christian Life Church, if there's a need, sometimes you're the answer and it's just servant. Your life is a sacrifice, man. I'm really not that good at this, but there's a need and I'm going to help. Again, for example, if somebody shows up to the church and says, I need prayer and your response is, that's not my gifting. Uh, no, this is their need. And sometimes their need is more important than your gifting. And so a real life scenario right now is kids ministry. There is a need in kids ministry. <laughs> yeah. 
And we have one service currently, and we have a need for more kids ministry team members from the nursery all the way upstairs. And a lot of the same people are serving week after week because we have one service and they're back there and they don't get to sit in here a lot. But they're the ones, and oh, I'm good, I can do this week after week after week. But if we had a big enough team, we could really support and relieve one another. This is a real life need. And some of you may say, that's not my gifting. But that's the need the family needs right now. And so if you feel the spirit doing something in you, man, talk to LA. There's this card underneath the seat in front of you. Write on it. I'm willing to meet the need of the house right now. Sign me up. Let me know what I need to do. Even if it's just once a month. Or once every other month, just jump in there because sometimes we need to learn to serve and step outside of our gifting, our preferences for the sake of the family. That's number three. Number four, and this may be helpful for you. I know this was helpful for me. If you come to Christian life and you're annoyed by something or something just bothers you, if it's like nails on a chalkboard and you're like, I hate that, or that's not right, or that drives me crazy, or I don't know why they don't fix that, or why is that like that, that might be your gifting. Well, not the gift of being annoyed or critical. <laughs> Some of you have that gift. But what I'm saying is to help fix that, is your gifting. You actually notice the lack because that's the Lord saying, that's because I've gifted you there. You notice the weakness because you're the answer. You notice where there's a lack because you're the answer to that. And so if you find yourself frustrated a lot or there's not a lot of things going on, please approach us because you might be the answer. We've been, we might say to you, oh my gosh, we know. We hate that too. We just need some help. And you might be the, the God's answer to that. So sometimes you'll be frustrated around here. And please don't, you know, just tolerate it. And you're frustrated every Sunday. Jump in and say, hey, I noticed this. Can I perhaps offer a solution or some help? Maybe God's showing you because you're the answer. That's number four, all on spiritual gifting. Number five on spiritual gifts, and really this isn't an exhaustive list of how to operate in spiritual gifts and what each spiritual gift is. If you're interested in that, we have plenty of resources. But the last thing you have to know is your gift is not your identity. Your gift is not your identity. A lot of times it's easy to see people take their spiritual gift, we'll just keep using like teacher, or someone that operates in the prophetic, or prayer, or worship, or service, and they actually inwardly elevate that to their identity. You are not your gifting. You are a son or daughter of God that is fill in the blank, whatever your gifting is. You are a Christian that teaches. You're a Christian, a son or daughter of God that prays or prophesies or serves the homeless. But if you turn your gifting into an idol, then what happens is a lot of times you gravitate solely to those that are gifted just like you. And then you isolate from the other giftings. And then you find yourself criticizing those that are not like you. 
And you actually notice an inward opposition towards those not gifted like you instead of using your gifting to support and serve the diverse gifting called the body of Christ, the the diverse family called the body of Christ. So check your heart on that. No matter what your physical gifting is or even obviously spiritual gifting, make sure it is not becoming the highest level of your identity to the point where it is who you are and you can't step outside of that place. Your gift is not your identity. I could talk all day about it, but hear that. So those are five thoughts on spiritual gifts. But now we get to verse 11. And Paul now begins to expound on a specific gift that Christ has given to his church. And it's called the gift of church leadership. And now before I read these verses, some of you have experienced church leadership like pastors that seemed like they were not Christ's gift to you, but they actually, in your memory, seemed like they were Satan's gift to you, if we're honest. It's easy, you know, to laugh, but for some of you, when I say that, it brings about a lot of pain. Some of you are sitting here, and your memories of that church, or your upbringing, or whatever, and you see the faces of those church leaders, they bring pain, or anger, And honestly, a lot of the things that I might say or Pastor Ron might say or someone else that's a pastor might say, we suffer because of those people. You can't help but filter pastoral leadership through those that hurt you. And number one, I am so sorry that those that were intended to be a gift to you were not. Now, I don't know every scenario. Some of them really, truly were wrong. Some of it might have been a misunderstanding. I have no idea. But please know that Christ's heart of church leadership to you is supposed to be a gift. It's supposed to be a blessing to you. You It's supposed to cause you to well up and go, I am so thankful I have leadership to serve me and lead me. It's supposed to be a gift. It's not supposed to be something that go, oh, yeah, we got to talk about church. No, it's supposed to be a gift. This is in the category of Christ giving gifts to the church. And so know that from the bottom of our heart, speaking on behalf of the pastors here at Christian Life, our heart is to serve you. We want to model this so well and be a gift to you. But please hear me. We will fail you. We will. Because we, <laughs> we're human. But our heart is to serve you and support you and be a blessing to your family. Because that's the heart of God. Which leads us to verse 11. It says, and he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. To equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. When you think of Ephesians 4, this is probably what you think of. This verse. And many people wonder what exactly each of these roles mean. What's apostle mean? What's prophet mean? We could have our theories and all the stuff. And there's, you know, a lot of things we could say. But just know where everybody agrees is that these roles operated as church leadership on a mass scale and a local church scale. And these roles existed to teach and equip people in the word of God. 
the Bible and to live out the world word as they themselves model what they're teaching. Tony Merida quoted him a lot in the Acts series. He says this, while we wrestle with these distinctive positions and gifts, one thing is abundantly clear. God has blessed his people throughout redemptive history with gifted proclaimers of his word. The author of Hebrews tells us, remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcomes of their lives, imitate their faith. Such leaders are instruments in the Redeemer's hands used for our sanctification. Their teaching strengthens us, and Paul says next, equips us for ministry. So just know the heart of this passage is that the church would have leadership in place on a mass scale, a national scale. Like Pastor Ron, I think of all of those that he is accountable to. I consider them those that are in a superior authority to him to hold him accountable but then within that in this church has leadership a local church lead pastor but then there's so many different things beyond that but just know the heart of Jesus is that is that supposed to be a blessing to you and our heart is to do that especially in equipping you for the work of ministry so with that being said you have to get that right in your mind. What the church leadership does not do, and again, I just spoke to this, is the church is not a cruise ship you attend to be entertained. The church leadership does not exist solely to serve you and please you and entertain you. This speaks, what I like to say, it speaks directly against consumer mentality that exists in the church. There's a consumer mentality and then there's a Christian mentality. In a consumer mentality, the leadership exists solely to serve you. In a Christian mentality, the leadership exists to equip you as you serve others. In a consumer mentality, it's more like a business transaction. How can I give the least? How can I give the least amount of money and time and effort and get the most in return? That's consumer, but a Christian mentality is how can I give my money, my time, my gifts, my capacities, my abilities, and where could I help bring unity and health to our church family? The consumer mentality is business. Again, the Christian mentality is family. I think about, I don't know why this came to my mind. I think about the parents in the room. If you approached your family with a business mentality, especially your kids, you wouldn't do anything for that because they are not doing anything. Well, mostly they're not doing much to deserve your time and your effort. It's like, well, if you don't behave today, I'm not going to cook you dinner. It's like <laughs> some of you might do that and that's fine. I think, I don't know, but, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? You don't approach family with a business mentality. If you do approach your family with a business mentality, you might wonder why there's strife and division and conflict all the time. You approach your family with a family mentality. I love you no matter what. No strings attached. I'm for you. And that's the heart that the Apostle Paul's saying. Okay. Stick to the notes. Okay. Verse, thir <laughs> Verse 13. We are supposed to equip you. For the work of ministry and along the way, verse 13 says, you do this until we all attain 
to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Basically, what this is saying is maturity is what should be happening along the way. Along the way, as your leadership equips you, as you're living a life of ministry, a sacrifice pleasing to the Lord, what should be happening along this adventure is maturity. You should begin to look more and more and more and more and more like Jesus and less and less and less and less like yourself. More like Jesus. The Bible here is speaking straight up against complacent, lazy Christian mentality. The one that says, I prayed that prayer. I'm just going to go to church until Jesus comes back. No, no, no. Get up. And from your salvation, get to work. We have work to do. The speaking against consumer Christianity. And, and I would like to say this. You should regularly, and hear me entirely here. When we gather, when we teach, you should regularly feel an element of discomfort or challenge or conviction. If every teaching... And every gathering here at Christian Life causes you solely to feel good about yourself and where you are, then that could be an indication of one of two things. One, we are not teaching the word accurately. Or number two, there might be an element of complacency that has crept into your life. Again, when you show up to church, yes, you should feel blessed, the joy of the Lord, but through the proclamation of the word, as we measure our lives to the word that is being taught, I pray, happens to me all the time, that it causes you to go, oh, man. That Holy Spirit, I see, yep, you're trying to speak to me through your word. I'm not being kind. I'm not following. I haven't spent time with you yet. My mentality, it's, you should feel an element of challenge. And that's the word of God doing a work in you to do what? To make you look more like Jesus. That's his goal. Amen. <laughs> okay. So verses 14 through 16 are simple. And this could be a whole sermon in and of itself. But verse 14 says, Maturity is the goal so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. When every part is working properly, guess what happened? It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, you might read that and go, oh, if we all operate in our giftings, it's going to grow the church. That's not what it's saying. It's actually saying it's an inner growth. The health of the congregation grows. The body is strengthened when the hand isn't the only one working, but when the other hands and the feet and the knees and the eyes and the hair and the, all, the, all the body parts work together, it allows for health. And healthy things lead to growth. And so the reason that we need 
maturity in Christ is because as you grow in maturity, you actually grow down roots. Has anybody ever planted something? And it, or like weeds, for example. A weed is so easy to pull a lot of times because its roots aren't very deep. But if you go to a tree, you try to pull a tree out, that's just not going to happen. Why? Because its roots are so deep. This is what the Apostle Paul's saying, is you need to grow in Jesus. You need to grow in maturity because you need roots deep down in the ground because culture is going to come along and try to come up with this crafty scheme to sway you away, even within the church. These theological things that sound good and they sound interesting, but if you're not rooted in the truth, those things will pull you up and sway you. This is what he's saying. Don't be tossed around by the waves. Don't go be tossed around by all these things. Plant yourself in Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's finish. So the last two sections are simple. Verses 17 through 24, what they do is they speak to Christians to be countercultural, to live opposite of the way of the world. Verse 17 says, Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He's indicating unbelieving Gentiles, the world. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Verse 22, hear this, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Paul's comparing and contrasting the old life versus the new life. And he lists out aspects of what an unbeliever lives and thinks like. And then in verse 20, he calls the believers in Jesus to live differently. So hear this. This is the one thought I want to say on this, and I have it on the screen for you. What we consume determines how we think. How we think determines how we live. If you choose to think on evil things, darkness is the natural consequence. If we choose to think on godly things, it leads to transformation towards godliness. Paul is challenging believers to not think and live like unbelieving worldly Gentiles do, but rather to think and live like Christ. And so the same applies just like it did to them. It applies to us. Stop thinking like the world, which then thinks, which then transitions to you living like the world. This is a choice you have to make as a believer. Choosing to involve yourself in evil will produce dark thinking, dark lifestyles, and eventually will build up a callous towards the things of God. And worst of all, could lead you to stop feeling the weight of sin. You stop feeling that conviction towards sin. The opposite is what we are called to do. If we think on Jesus, we remember the gospel, stand in the truth, know that we're not going to be perfect 
But when we fall, we fall into grace. We fall into the gospel. And the gospel gives us the ability to stand back up and to keep going and remain in a right relationship with Jesus. But as we think on heavenly things, on godly things, as we get the word of God in our minds, therefore, we live differently. And so... What we consume determines how we think. How we think determines how we live. My practical encouragement is take inventory of what you're consuming. What you're watching, what you're listening to. Again, what I'm not doing is creating a bunch of those rules and regulations. But what I am saying is that if you want more joy in your life, if you want to know God more, if you want to hear the Lord speak to you again, take inventory of what you're consuming that's what countercultural living can look like. But then to close it all out, the Apostle Paul gets very practical. And this is what we'll close with. Verses 25 through 32. What does it look like to be countercultural? Paul says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth in love with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And yes, that is correct. I'll hit on that. Verse 27. And no opportunity to the devil. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And congratulations, you just read a whole chapter of the Bible. Chapter 4. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And we did it in 40 minutes. <laughs> so here's the closing. Here's the last thing. What it looks like to live countercultural is to replace the old things with the new. So breaking these verses down, I have this for you. We're to replace lying with truth telling. Just be honest. Just be honest. Even if it's a sacrifice, even if it gets you in trouble, just be honest. Because you may deceive your boss or your spouse or your kid or whatever. You may deceive them and get away with the lie, but you're not pleasing the Heavenly Father. Replace lying with truth-telling. Number two, replace unrighteous anger with righteous anger. It's okay to be angry, in case you didn't know that. Anger in and of itself is not sin, but it is how you respond to that anger that is sin. Don't allow your anger to cause you to sin against other people replace stealing with working and giving replace corrupt talk with edifying talk no more gossip no more backbiting no more destructive speech here's a fun fact did you know that if you actually followed this command and yielded your tongue to the spirit for the glory of God probably 90% of your issues in life would be dissolved if you yielded your tongue, if you, if you were careful with what you say, if you chose not to partake in that 
gossip or whatever, if you chose not to bite back, if you chose to act in humility instead of defending, 90% of your problems may dissolve. Food for thought. And the last one, replace bitterness and rage with kindness and forgiveness. To forgive others no matter what, like Christ has forgiven you. This might sound weird, but if we live like this, you literally are untouchable. Not in a negative sense, but what that means is there is nothing you can do to me that's going to allow sin to creep in my heart. You can do whatever I forgive you, and genuinely, you can do whatever, man, peace, kindness. I'm untouchable. I'm unoffendable to truly live like this, and this is what it looks like to grow in maturity in Jesus, and this is what countercultural living looks like, and that is what the Apostle Paul was trying to say to the Ephesian church. And that is what the Spirit of God here in 2023 is trying to say to us as well. Amen? Stand with me. I threw a lot at you, and that was on purpose. That was a whole chapter of the word, and we barely scratched the surface. You might not have noticed, but I used a lot of self-control to not expound on certain things. <laughs> but what I hope it does is, one, as you approach chapter four, you next time you read it, go, oh, he's quoting Psalm 68. I know, I get it now. And I hope that it, man, makes you hungry to go, what was he not saying? What else is there in here? Go study. If you need resources, that's what we're here for, to equip you, especially in the Word. Come talk to me, and I would love to help you. But because I really do, I genuinely want you to leave here and go, what did we say? What did he talk about? As we close, here's just a quick list. Based on chapter 4, here are the few things I really want you to remember. Seven things. Number one, fight for unity in the church for the glory of God. Fight for unity in this church. We got to fight for it. You can't be passive towards it. You have to play your part and fight for unity. The minute you sniff or catch something that is causing something maybe towards disunity, you do something about it. Don't just be passive and, oh, they're just upset about that. Like, no, help. You got to, we're family here. And as family, family works together to fight for unity and doesn't just punt that to mom and dad or whoever. We together fight for unity because it glorifies God. Number two, you have a purpose in serving fellow believers and the world. If something has convinced you to make you think you're disqualified or you are not gifted in Christ, that's a lie. You are. You have a place in serving this congregation, other believers, and the community and world we live in. Number three, fight to overcome the consumer mentality. Just, you can be a consumer on the cruise ship. That's fine. I give you permission. You can be a consumer at the spa or the lounge, when you get your nails done, consume all you want. But in this church and in the community we live in as a whole, you are not a consumer. You are a saint. You are a Christian. 
you are part of the body of Christ. Yes, you should receive and learn and grow, but with the intention of being equipped to go. The, the quarterbacks on the star football team don't just sit on the bench. They, they are equipped. They learn to go on the field and play the game to win. So it is with us. Fight the consumer mentality. Number four, followers of Jesus are to live countercultural. We are called to live unlike the world. This makes me think of um, Athanasius, an early church father. The church was bending their knee to sin, and they were allowing lies to creep in. And Athanasius is known to have said, if, if the world be against Christ or if the world be against truth, then he said contramundum, which means that I'm against the world. That's countercultural. Our life motto is contramundum. We are against the world. I reject to live like the world. I reject and I pursue to live like Christ. That's number four. Number five, be mindful of what you're consuming every day. Remember, darkness in, darkness out. Number six, Christians are called to a higher standard of living. Live worthy of the calling you've been called to. And number seven, the only way to obtain Numbers one through six is closeness with God. That's the only way. It's the only way. And that is a summary of Ephesians four. So I pray the word of God in Ephesians four would comfort and convict and challenge and spur you on to grow closer to Jesus, deepen your faith in him and get to work in this hour that we live in. Amen. I'll pray and then dismiss us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Ephesians four. Lord, I pray that if there's anything I said that was wrong or inaccurate, or if I represented your text unaccurately, Lord, let it fade away. But Spirit of God, whatever was your heart to us, let that stick, let that convict, let that comfort, let that challenge us. Because our heart, Lord, is to look like you and to live for you and glorify you in this church and in our community and our families and our workplaces. So Lord, help us. That's our prayer. Lord, we just need your help. And God, I pray for anyone in the room that may not know you. God, I pray that right now you would do a work in their heart. That you would even lead them to talk to somebody. Come talk to me. But if someone in the room is not right with you, Jesus, I pray that you would bring peace to their heart. And that they would reject their life of sin. They would lay their life down and they would follow you. No strings attached. And Lord, we love you. I pray for every need of every person in the room. I pray that you would meet it. And God, that you would sustain us through. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for all you're doing. And Lord, help us to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, can we just give an ovation of praise to Jesus? Amen. Okay. So next Sunday, Ephesians 5, Pastor Ron will be back to teach Ephesians 5. We love you guys. If you need anything, if you need prayer, come find one of us up here up front. We love you. Pray you have a great week, and we'll see you back here next week.